0: Revelation chapter 15, as we have been singing about this great God, this holy, holy, holy God Almighty, we're going to see that same God here in this chapter this morning, in chapter 15. I want to speak to the subject of final preparations. You know, much planning and strategy are, are required to pull off any sort of event. This event we've had this weekend took a lot of planning, it took strategy, it took people working together so that it could be a success. And so we do that in all areas of our life when we're putting something on or putting something together. In fact, many couples these days, they will hire a wedding planner to make sure that their wedding is coordinated, their wedding is directed, everything is falling into place, so that that special day when it's happening has no hiccups, it has no hitches, and make sure that everything goes as it should. And so they'll pay big bucks to ensure that their special day is flawless, Birthday parties, family celebrations are very similar to that. I mean, think about what families will do. They'll hire a coordinator at some point, but maybe they don't do that, but they will, they will make sure that they find the right vendor. They make sure they find the right venue, and, and they will do whatever they needs to do to organize that event, working with those people, calling entertainers, calling the host sites to make sure that their little Johnny's birthday is the best birthday party ever on Facebook. Right? right? It's about the likes. We love to plan. We love to strategize. It's no different than what we do here here at Red Lane. I mentioned this weekend, it takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of strategy. It takes a lot of people involved to make sure an event happens. A Sunday morning is very similar. We don't just show up in the service just happens. There's things that take place. We have a hospitality team and people who lead there and serve there, and, and we want to make sure that there's people in the parking lot to greet our members, regular attenders, visitors who would be here on each and every Sunday. We plan, we strategize, we work to make sure that things go as planned and go flawlessly. same is true for the bride and groom. It's true for the family who's planning the birthday party. We like to prepare. We like to plan and when all that culminates to that final moment, what happens right before that it 's the time for final preparations right if you 're planning to go on vacation, many of you have been away at some point this summer and, and you were planning if wife. You were planning five, six, seven weeks ahead of time. You've got the suitcase out there on the floor a month before we leave, but we're already beginning to think that way. I'm not that way. I plan literally two minutes before I walk out of the door to go on a trip because I only have about this much clothes versus what my females in my house have, and so I got to do laundry before I go, and so I wait till the last minute to pack my bags, but the final preparation in any sort of event is Like that long list, that laundry list of things that has to be done to make sure that it happens. That's what we see here in Revelation chapter 15. We see sort of these final preparations taking place before the seven bowls of wrath are unleashed upon sinful humanity in the cursed world that we live in. And so God is making these final preparations. Look with me. Let's read this chapter. It's short. It's only eight verses this morning. And let's see what God says about these final preparations. John, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. You're alone, are holy, and all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. John says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, forever and ever." And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. As we've been working through Revelation, especially the last three chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, we have seen uh, not only just the trumpets and the seals prior to that, but we've been working through recently this interlude, chapters 12, 13, and 14. This interlude between the seven trumpets being sounded and the outpouring of these seven bowls, which we will get to in chapter 16, that we're seeing pictures of here in chapter 15. So the time of the trumpet, if we were to go back to chapter 10, verse 7, announced the period of these seven bowls of wrath being unleashed, being poured out. When the trumpet was sounding, which was to be the third woe, we see there that no woe or plague occurred. Instead, we have an anticipatory announcement of the coming of God's kingdom. That's what we work through as we saw this interlude in these three chapters. Since the seventh trumpet has no plague of its own, even though it's the third woe, what we must conclude is that what we find in the seven bowls is that third woe. The third woe, in fact, is the wrath of God being finished, as John speaks of here in verse 1. Jordel and Ladd in his commentary, I believe correctly, reminds us that these plagues are poured out only on those who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image there in chapter 16, verse 2. We see that being played out. So they will not be unleashed on believers present during the great tribulation. I've been telling you as we've worked, this is now the 28th message. Book of Revelation, and we're just now getting to chapter fifteen. So there's about at least ten more to go in the next six or so chapters. But throughout this, uh, the, these messages, throughout this series, I've been telling you, I personally believe the church goes through the great tribulation; that they're there, present during it, and they will experience all the the the, the vitriol coming from the enemy, coming from the demons of hell as they persecute the church. Many of them will be martyred for the faith, but these bowls of wrath, these trumpets of judgment, these seals that are being unbroken are not unleashed on God's people. They're unleashed as judgment, warnings, and woes against the apostate people, the sinless, godless, worshipers of the enemy will experience the wrath of God. So these bowls of wrath Much like the trumpet, serve the purpose of bringing sinful men and women to their knees before God in a final opportunity for repentance. As we end this chapter, I believe that's what we're seeing there, is God unleashing and preparing for the unleashing of these bowls to bring men and women to their knees in one last attempt to woo them into His grace. So in anticipation, anticipation, I should say, of the end, the seven angels and the victorious believers ready themselves to participate in as well as celebrate the justice of God. You know, this morning we've sang a lot about the grace of God. We've sang a lot about the, the goodness of God. Wrapped up in goodness and grace and mercy and peace and love and the fellowship He desires to be with, to have with us is justice. It's the justice of God. And we're going to see as the the heavens open up and they sing this song, they're going to be singing about the justice of God as it crushes God's enemies. But more than that, singing about the grace and the forgiveness that also comes through the justice of God as they experience salvation through the Lamb. The revelation here is given, just as a reminder so that we too might anticipate and prepare ourselves for the justice of God and the finality of the end. I wonder, as a Christian, do you long for the end? Do you long, not just that we no longer have to travail through this difficult life, we no longer have to, to, to experience sufferings and persecutions and, and difficulties, but do we long for the end when God in His justness brings justice against all sinfulness that's crushed under his feet, that everything is made right. Last week we talked about the vindication of our faith. That's what we see here throughout the Revelation is this longing for the justice of God to vindicate our faith, to vindicate our suffering, to vindicate the, the, the persecution of God's people and those who have uh, they've slandered and blasphemed the name of God. As we look here at this finality, this movement to the final end, I want to share with you three realities that I believe that we need to see, we need to understand in regards to these final preparations. And so last week I had six points. This morning I've shortened it to half that, and so uh, that's just my gift to you uh, this morning. You wouldn't be a Baptist preacher if you didn't have three points and a poem. I just always leave the poem out. First thing I want you to see, first reality as we think about final preparations is Believers rest in the eternality and the certainty of God's justice. As we prepare, as we make final preparations for the end, one of the things we must keep in our mind and we celebrate and we, we hold on to is that we as followers of Jesus, we can and we should rest in the eternality and in the certainty of God's justice. It is not up for a debate. Justice will be served. And that's a good place to say amen. Here in verse 1, John sees a great sign in heaven. Now, this is the third great great sign that we've seen in Revelation that John has seen and shared with us as he's written out the Revelation. The first great sign appeared back in chapter 12, verse 1. It was a woman clothed with the sun. The second came two verses later, and it was a great red dragon. If you remember what's going on in chapter 2, the woman symbolizes a, a, a the Lord birthing in, the, the, the son that she's going to bear is going to be the Messiah, and, and so she's the one who brings the offspring of God into the world. The great red dragon is the one who's trying to stomp that or kill her, put an end to everything that she is doing. So is this cosmic, very, um, very visionary type of, of picture of what's happening in the spiritual realm, and that's this great two signs that John sees. Now signs, as we try to understand them here in the Revelation, they point beyond themselves and disclose the theological meaning of history. And so that very mythological type of scene there in chapter 12 is speaking to what's happening in real time, in real life, as there is a war between good and evil, between the Lord and Satan. The third great sign John sees here, it's seven angels with seven plagues. The fact that there are seven angels having seven plagues speaks of the certainty as well as the completeness of divine wrath against all unrighteousness. You probably know that the number seven many times in the Bible speaks of completeness, speaks of finality, speaks of wholeness there, right? Creation was created in six days, and then on the seventh day, God rested, speaking of the fact that it is finished. It is done. Verse 1 here as we seek to understand all of what's taking place, serves as a summary of both chapters 15 and 16. In fact, in actuality, these angels do not really appear on the scene in time until chapter 15, verse 8. But here they're presented as those who would carry out God's final outpouring of wrath. These judgments are not just the last of the series of wrath, but also the last judgments of history. It's almost like the, the books are about to be closed, the court case is about to be finished, and God is bringing everything to a climax because that's what's happening. This is the final judgment against humanity, a final judgment against those who have rebelled against him. And so they possess covenant implications as God breaks out against those who disobey his commands as well as war against his people. There's a war taking place daily. The war against God and the war against His people has not ceased. It's always. In fact, it will not cease until the end when the wrath of God is finished. And so those who would look at uh, look at the end time sequence and try to make sense of it, and would have what would be called as a post-millennial type of viewpoint from theologian standpoint, that the idea that everything is going to get better, that we're living already in this millennial kingdom, that is hogwash. Take a look around the world today. You don't see anything getting better. You see nothing but things getting worse. Why? It's because there's a war being waged against the Lord and against the Lord's people, and that will continue until the very end and when Jesus puts all things under his feet. What's happening today around the world, what's happening in America is the people, are God. people of God are mocked. The people of God are made fun of. The, the, the church is maligned. The Bible is marginalized. The gospel is marooned. See, there's an open and all-out war on God and on his people taking place. If you don't believe that, just stroll through the headlines. Take a look at what's happening, not just here, but around the world. I believe we've seen some of this work played out in this season of this virus that we've been in as things have been shut down and, and certain businesses, certain things have been opened up. But there are places in our country, certain states, there are definitely places around the world where despite what is happening or not happening because of this virus, the church has been prevented from worshiping, gathering together, prevented from practicing our faith. States like California and Nevada have been like this in our own country. I'm thankful for churches and pastors like John MacArthur who can call it what it is and stand up and say enough is enough. We not only have a biblical right to worship as God's people, but we have a constitutional right to do so. And so thankfully, I believe they won their, their case last week or the week before. They stood strong there. These places, local churches they not being allowed to worship. They're not being allowed to practice their faith. Some might argue that the shutdown is necessary for now so we can fully reopen at some point in the near future. I would point to the unfairness there. I would point to the un- unconstitutional aspect of it in our own nation, but I would also try to lead people to ask the question, could there, think about this, could there be something more at work, at play, behind the scenes, orchestrating events, whispering in ears, doing everything they can to prevent the people of God from worshiping the Lord Jesus? For many years, I used to go to Uganda. I had Great friends there, pastors and church members, and the Lord's active in that beautiful country. If you've ever been to Africa, it is an absolutely beautiful continent. And and the nation of Uganda, it's east central, it's right on the equator. It is fabulous. I love the nation of Uganda. I'm troubled today because I've seen pictures from pastor friends of mine who have placed pictures online and, and calling for prayer. You see, their nation has been absolutely shut down. Their churches have been prevented from gathering as the people of God to worship the Lord. In fact, some of the churches who've dared to divide these, the, the, the government's orders, they weren't just locked with paddle padlock paddle and chain. They were ordered to take bulldozers and push the whole thing over. And so that they were left with nothing but rubble, bricks, and mortar, and boards. And yet the country of Uganda, which has... Nearly 43 million people, only has 1,848 cases to date as of yesterday, with 19 deaths. And yet, all of that means they've shut down the churches. Now, we know the church is not a building, right? Church is not a building, church is a people. Thankfully, the church will continue because it is the people rather than a place. The people, however, are under attack. Christians are constantly under attack around the world. This is just one small glimmer of what persecution looks like, and it's a minor persecution at that. Christians are constantly under attack around the world. They're being persecuted. They're being killed for their faith. You see, their rights are being stripped from them. And we watch today as our culture right here in America becomes increasingly antagonistic toward anything and everything Christian. If you don't believe that, just pay attention. It's not easy to be a Christian today. You see, 20, 30, 40 years ago, we could open the doors, throw on a big event, and people would come, but that's not the culture we live in today. Right or wrong, I think in some ways, it's kind of purified the church. It's not so much of, of uh, just a brotherhood of, of some sort of, um, I want to get in there and network with people. No, people who come to church typically are the ones who are serious about their faith. Because it's not easy to live as a Christian today in this world. We witness people reject God. We witness them reject His Word. We see the devil continue to gain ground and influence within our culture. And so our response shouldn't be a taking up of arms against those who persecute us. No, we don't do that. We would never do that. Our response is simply a calm rest in the eternality and the certainty of God's justice. You see, a day will soon come when the wrath of God will be finished. That's a certain thing. The justice he will fully and finally bring against evil, it will not be a temporary thing. Look what it says in verse 7. It says, the God who exists forever and ever. His justice will be exhausted on those who have rejected him, who have disobeyed his word, who have warred against him and his people. And that justice that will be served will not be temporary. It will be eternal. It will last forever and ever, just as he exists forever and ever. What does that mean? It means there will never be a parole date for the enemy. You see, we hear news reports all the time of, of people who commit murders and, and grievous crimes, and they get out from many of our perspectives early, like they didn't serve enough of a sentence to pay for their crimes. They get an early release. They get a parole, or they get some sort of other order there that would release them before they've served their time and paid their dues for the crimes committed. That will never happen with those who have sinned against God. There will be no parole for the enemy. There will be no parole for the demons of hell. There will be no parole for the rebellious men who reject Christ as Lord and Savior and war against the people of God. So we rejoice in the certainty of His justice. And that leads us to a second reality. Believers worship God for His righteous deeds that have brought victory. They worship God for the righteous deeds that have brought them victory. Look at verse 2. John sees a glass, a sea of glass mingled with fire. If you have paid attention as we've walked through the Revelation, it's reminiscent of what we see in chapter 4, verse 6, where there John is asked to come up into the throne room of heaven, and when he gets to the throne room of heaven, he sees a sea of glass. It speaks of the majesty of God, the glory of God. It speaks of the presence of God as he stands before the throne of Almighty God. Here in chapter 15, this sea of glass is now mingled with fire, which speaks uh, of judgment. So it's this image of judgment being poured out. Those standing before the sea of glass are the ones who've conquered the beast. They've conquered his image and the number, even as they were conquered by the beast. And so the ones who are standing here beside the sea of glass, mingled with fire, are the ones who've been martyred for their faith. The Bible says that they've conquered them. How could they conquer them if they've been martyred by the Antichrist, martyred by the false prophet, martyred by the dragon? How in the world can you call that as conquering them when you've actually been conquered? The Bible tells us back in 12, verse 11, that they loved not their lives, even unto death, that they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. You see, it didn't matter what happened to them physically. It didn't matter what happened to their lives here in this world. They understood that their life was in Christ. The blood of Jesus had redeemed him, and in the face of persecution and opposition, they were not caring about their life here, but caring about the Lord Jesus and representing him before their persecutors they stand before the throne of God here with harps and sing the song of Moses. That is the song of the Lamb, verse 3. The song of Moses is a song of victory. It's praising God for his mighty works in the Exodus. We find it in Exodus chapter 15 as they come, and they're on the backside of the Red Sea. They sing of what God has done to bring victory in their lives. The song of the Lamb more fully expresses the victory won by the Lord in keeping with back in Revelation 12 verse 11, that they were able to overcome through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Grammatically, we see here that John presents one song. The song of Moses, Moses, that is the song of the Lamb, is how we should understand this. The two work together. This song does not celebrate the judgment of God upon his enemies, but the righteousness of his great redemptive acts. The people of God worship the Lord, for he alone does great and amazing deeds in salvation. Look what he says. Great and amazing deeds are, are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations worship the lord for his just and true activity and bringing the nations to himself they glorify his mighty name the name that is above every name paul would tell the philippians that there's coming a day when all will bow their knees all will confess to the glory of god the father they worship for his holy and righteous acts as believers and fathers of jesus today we worship god for his redemptive activity in our own lives we worship the Lord for his redemptive activity in our families, in our church, in our community. We praise God for the grace that opened our eyes to our own sin and rebellion. See, when we sing like we've done this morning, we think about his goodness and grace. We should be just overwhelmed by the fact that he loves us and called us to himself. Because Paul told the Ephesians that we were dead in trespasses and sins. I don't know about you, but I've been to many funerals. I've never seen a dead person rise up and have a conversation. i never had a dead person stand up out of a cold often. To be honest, that would freak me out. But that's what happens to us spiritually, that we were dead, and the Lord opened our eyes. The Lord sparked us. The Lord gave us an opportunity to understand our situation, understand His gospel, and respond to it. So we praise God for that praise Him for the mercy that He's offered us in salvation when we deserve only the wrath of God. You see, today as well as tomorrow, we worship God for the victory we have in the cross. The nations may rage and wage war against the Lamb. They may slaughter His sheep today. But regardless, the victory is ours. They conquered even as they were being conquered. Victory here is assured as the seven angels come forth from the temple of heaven. This victorious worship. Leads to a third and final reality. Non believers must recognize they are undone before a holy, righteous, and just God. Non believers, those who are not in relationship with Christ, must realize, ought to realize, should realize, they should see the predicament that they're in in the face of all that is about to take place in the face of the wrath that is about to be fully and finally exhausted upon them. The proper response to all of that is to bow the knee, to recognize their undoneness. As Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man of an unclean heart. I live among a people who have unclean lives. I need the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I will repent and turn in faith to Jesus. That is the response of an unbeliever. In the face of holiness and righteousness and justice, John here sees the seven angels carrying seven plagues and the seven bowls of wrath. They come from the temple of God, which inserts the idea of covenant with its attendant blessings and curses. The idea that God had made a covenant with His people Israel. It's carried over into the age of the church that God will bless His people. That God will fight for his people. God will provide for his people. And though we may suffer for a moment, there's coming a day that the Lord will honor his covenant with his people. He will bless those who bless. He will curse those who curse. Nations have broken the covenant with God. Therefore, they must face the consequences. The angels here, John describes them as being clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. The linen stresses the purity and the glory of these angels. They bear golden sashes, symbolizing the elevated status as Christ's emissaries. These are the ones who are actually going to carry out the wrath of the Lord Jesus against those who've done evil. Their bowls are filled with the wrath of God. Filled, not partially filled, but filled to the brim. Remember last week in chapter 14, verse 10, we saw that the wrath will no longer be diluted. It will come full strength. That's, again, the, the picture and the idea in this chapter. The glory of God fills his temple also while judgment is being levied. And so during this time, no one is able to enter the temple until the wrath is complete. Speaks of certainty. These final preparations being made for God's full outpouring of judgment upon humanity. It ought to bring us to our knees. It ought to bring us to a place of brokenness and repentance, a place of faith. Non believers lost men, women, and children should see the danger that awaits them just ahead and turn back. Like a driver who's going down the road and he sees the sign that the road is out ahead, you don't continue to drive faster to the end and plunge off the cliff. No, you hit the brakes, you stop, you get off the road, and you take another exit. That's what we should do in response to this. A person who's not in relationship with Jesus Christ, who sees the holiness and the righteousness and the justice of God being levied against sinful humanity, should, warn, or should heed the warning of God, pull off, get the next exit, and put their faith and trust in Jesus. But that's not what we see as the story unfolds. There's the opportunity, but by and large, most of humanity at this point in history seems to continue to headlong go down the road to their doom, plunging themselves into the wrath of God. Here in this final season of judgment, the Lord offers an opportunity, one last time for sinners to repent of sin and to come by saving faith to Jesus. I don't believe there's another opportunity in the rest of Revelation. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem they receive it. But today is not that day. Last night at our student event, I was talking with some of our guys, and and I don't remember exactly the conversation, but one of the guys kind of joked that we have different end time pers- perspectives. I'm a historical pre he's a pre-trib, pre-mill, he's wrong, I'm right, it's fine. We had a funny conversation about that. He's like, you know, because your position, we're going to have to go through all this. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's right. And, and so we went back and forth. And so it's all about perspective, what you believe. But I think what I'm saying here, what I see here is the right thing. Today we're not in the tribulation. We probably could all agree on that. That means there's an opportunity still to turn to Christ so today, the offer stands as we read, as we understand the condemnation that rests upon our sin. We stand undone before a holy and righteous and just God. This is the sin we bear, it will be dealt with at some point. It's going to be dealt with. I remember as a freshman in college, 18 years old, religious kid, understood the gospel, trying my best to, to, to live Christian life, but never having Christ in my life. It's kind of hard to do that when you don't have one in your life. To emulate in your life. It just doesn't really work. And so if I would have died and somehow left this life, I would have carried my sin into eternity and it would have been dealt with. Thankfully, God opened my eyes through the gospel. I understood that sinfulness. I understood the great need in my life and I was given faith to believe the gospel. And so my sin at that point also was dealt with. It was dealt with nearly 2,000 years before that as Jesus bore in his body my sin and, and the sins of the world, and he took it to the cross, and there he experienced the full frontal attack of the wrath of God the Father against all of us, it in his body, experiencing the shame, and, and, and took it to the grave. Today, because I had an opportunity to faith into Jesus I can stand clean before the Lord. No, I'm not sinless. I'm not perfect. I'm just like everyone else. But there is a difference in my life, like other believers, and that is Jesus has took my sin to the cross. He's bore the penalty for that. And today, I stand forgiven. Past, present, and future. Walking in greater sanctification. Sometimes greater than other times, but there is process of sanctification in the life of the believer. It's all because... There was a response of faith. Today, Non-believers, when they see the wrath being brought against sinful humanity, ought to put the brake on and come to God. These final preparations and closing remind us not just that the event is almost here, it also reminds us that it's certain. You see that suitcase that sits in our bedroom floor for days on end, leading up to whatever trip we're about to take, reminds us something's happening here pretty soon. We got to do some laundry. We got to think through what we need to take. We got to get the kids ready. We need to make preparations with the mail. We need to figure out who's going to come over and if we got plants outside that need to be watered. That's take. We got to make some preparations because this event is coming. What we see here in chapter 15 as we get ready to look at the bowls of wrath to come in chapter 16 reminds us not only that it's almost here, but that it, the fact that it is certain. The Lord Jesus. Offered a description of what to expect as history ramped up toward the end. I read this in my devotional time. If you're reading with me this year through the Bible, you read this as well. Luke chapter 21, Jesus there speaks of the end time. He talks about some of the things that are going to happen. He doesn't give a full description, a full timeline of what that's going to look like. But he speaks of and and shares that there's going to be a season of increasing war. He talks about how there's going to be an increase in natural disasters. He talks about how there's going to be geopolitical up, un, upheaval and unrest throughout the world. And there's going to be an increasing intensity in persecution. In this dangerous world climate, Jesus is followers that this would be their opportunity, I love this in verse 13, to bear witness. He says, "In the world is going what it seems like to hell. You're going to have an opportunity to be the witness for Jesus. You're going to have an opportunity to stand. It's going to cost your life. It's going to cost your your prestige and and prominence and, and your money. It's going to cost you dearly to be a witness, but you're going to stand steadfast and strong in the face of all of that opposition. You're going to be my witness. Because you're my witness, others are going to be able to see that. It will bring further condemnation on them, but there will be some, I believe, will see the steadfastness of believers and say, you know what, if they can do it, Something's different about them, and I want that. In all of this, Jesus offered assurance that justice will be served on both the sinner and the sin. Son of Man will come in a cloud with power and great glory, Luke twenty one twenty seven tells us. Jesus will return. And so as we await that day, we rest in the eternality and the certainty of God's justice. We know it's coming. We rest in that, and we take glory in the fact that he will be just and the justifier. We worship him for his righteous acts that have brought us victory through the cross. And we pray that sinners will recognize their sin and the judgment they are under and turn in repentance and faith to Jesus. We pray that they will believe on the gospel. The greatest need in anyone's life, I told this to our students last night, is to believe on Jesus greatest need in your life is, man, I need more education, I need more money, I need a better house, I need a new car, I need my kids to obey, I need my marriage to be put back together. That's not your greatest needs. The greatest need in your life, if anybody's life, is to be in a relationship with a God who loves you and has done everything necessary to redeem you. That's the greatest need in your life. And then after that, everything doesn't fall into place and it's all easy, hunky-dory, that's hogwash too. But life is so much easier, so much more simple, so much more um, fulfilling, when the God who created us is living and walking with us, we must believe on the gospel. What is the gospel? We talk about it a lot of times good news, bad news, best news. Good news is God loves you, designed you, done everything uh, to, to create a, a creature that could relate to Him in a way that no other aspect of creation can. The bad news is that all of us are sinners that we've been talking about. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot jump over the chasm of our own sin to get to the holiness and the righteousness of God. There's no way to do that. In high school, I was a long jumper. I jumped over 20 feet, won my conference, which is no big deal because I look back on that. I think junior high kids are jumping what I did in high school. And so that's bygones, but I jumped 20 feet or so, and I thought that was a huge accomplishment then, and then I stood a few years ago at the Grand Canyon, and there's no way 20 feet would have gotten me, even past the first little rock down there, I would have plunged to my death hundreds of feet below. That's like our sin. We may make a grand attempt to try to reach God, but our sin always takes us down. And yet, the best news is Jesus, God the Son, took your sin upon himself on the cross, and when he died, picture the cross coming down across the Grand Canyon, the chasm of our sin, and now we can cross over from one side to the other. Not because we're a great long jumper, not because we have great abilities, not because we're a good person or whatever we may put in that classification. We can cross over because Jesus crossed over for us and carried our sin. That's the gospel. This morning, the greatest need in your life, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, is to faith into Him. Secondly, the greatest need as a Christian is to walk in that faith, to stand steadfast. When the, t- when the going gets tough, we continue to press on. Because guess what? It's going to get. If you wanted to be encouraged this morning, here's some encouragement. Life's going to get worse for you. Right? If you live out your faith in, a, in just a... I want to say radical, but what, what does that mean? But just a, I'm sold out to Jesus, that is not an easy life to live. People will look at you and think, man, you're fundamental and weird and all that stuff. If, if you really love Jesus, it's going to be w- weird for you. Life is not going to be easy, but it's a life worth living. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that in these final preparations, we see and are encouraged with the certainty, the reality that everything we're living for, will culminate in your glorious return. God, we know that with that return comes the final judgment. We know that sin will be thrown into the lake of fire. We'll see that in a few chapters. We know that that Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of fire. We'll see that. God, here in these final preparations, as we move to the bowls of wrath, we know that humanity will be fully and finally dealt with. Those who've rejected Christ experience everything they deserve. Those of us in the Lord today, we know that we deserved it too at one point. But for Jesus in our life, we should experience all that. But we are so grateful today for the gospel that's changed us, made us new, and the glory in that. Lord, help us to be steadfast in our faith. Help us to live out our faith. Help us to be those who would share it with others, to live a life that's engaging and inviting to those who desperately need Jesus. May we be passionate for our community, for our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates. God, I pray for those in this room watching us online, who may watch us online in the weeks to come, that right now, sitting behind that screen in this room, They know that the greatest need in their life is to confess their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you would help them to do that. It's simple, and yet it's profound. It's just calling out to God, Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, I need you. God, I need your forgiveness. I recognize my sin. I understand the judgment that I'm under. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Become the Lord of my life. Well, that's all it is. It's not magical. It's just the attitude of a broken heart. And I pray you'd help him to make that decision. Help us to live for you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song of, re- of response. Here on the screen is some ways that I would encourage you to respond today in the room or online. Uh, you can send us a message in any of those venues. But we would love to hear from you. If you've got a prayer need, we want to pray for you this week. If you're a guest this morning, you haven't reached out and, and told us about you, we would love to be able to follow up with you and tell you what God's doing here at Red Lane. And More than anything, we want to pray for you and speak into your life. Let's sing, and as God is leading us, let's respond. Aye.